Our speaker, Professor Yuri Maltsov, uh, is a pro professor of economics at Carthage College. He earned his BA and master's degrees at Moscow State University and his PhD in labor economics at the Institute of Labor Research in Moscow, Russia. Before defecting to the United States in 1989, he was a member of a senior Soviet economics team that worked on President Gorbachev's reform package of perestroika. Prior to joining Carthage, Professor Maltsov was a senior fellow at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. His work involved briefing members of Congress and senior officials at the executive branch on issues of national security and foreign economic assessment. He has appeared on many uh, pro uh, news programs and he has written, authored five books and hundreds of articles in U.S. and foreign pu publications. Well, thank you, Michael, for this wonderful and short eulogy. And, and I, yes, I had a pretty bizarre background. I, uh, was, I wasn't uh, the economic advisor to Mr. Gorbachev. I wouldn't take the blame for what happened over there. And um, <clears throat> uh, because in this city, especially in this town, the, um, uh, most economists they use this abbreviation TBTF. I don't know if you heard about it. Too big to fail. Too big to fail. And too big to fail is definitely on the top of that list should be Soviet Union. Soviet Union was 11 time zones. Can you imagine 11 times one sixth of the world's surface completely destroyed by its own government without any foreign assistance. So then um, I defected, I, I don't like the word to defect, defect means you give up something you believed in, which I never did, because my grandfather was murdered by Stalin, he was an architect of Sochi, remember the uh, Olympic Games took place a couple of years ago, and so my father's life was screwed up because of that, because he was the enemy of the, son of the enemy of the people, and, uh, <clears throat> and so from day one I kind of had a pretty good idea of what is, what is happening there. And um, and so that's uh, uh, so I, when I kind of missed my train and ended up in the United States, I found myself working for the second largest bureaucracy of this planet, for the federal government. Well, working for federal government is definitely an overstatement of anybody's activities. Um, but I worked in the Congressional Think Tank, U.S. Institute of Peace, which, like most congressional think tanks, didn't think. Period. And so I decided to do something positive with myself, and I, and I, um, teaching young Americans ideas of liberty, ideas of free markets, um, and um, the president of my college is is joking all the time that it took him a Moscow-trained economist to teach supply and demand, and uh, instead of yesterday's paper or social justice or whatever they teach right now in academia, <coughs> so. Um, um, the topic is pretty broad today. Uh, the topic is pretty broad, and so I what I will make maybe introductory statement maybe for 20-30 minutes, and then you will ask me questions, uh, and uh, and uh, or make comments, uh, and then we will just talk about things that you are interesting in interested in talking. <coughs> well, uh, we will talk about what is wrong with Russia. The great Russian philosopher Grigory Chadaev, he in 1848 he wrote in his memoirs that I am that I am sitting and looking at the fireplace and I am thinking why the Lord in his wisdom created such an absurdity as Mother Russia. 
And then he came up with an answer to teach mankind some awful lesson all the time. And I think that Russia is still doing that pretty successfully. Um, however, the success after the collapse of Soviet Union was kind of uh, was up and down. And so today we find ourselves under the conditions in this country where 65% of college students responded to the survey of Rasmussen Paul that they prefer socialism to capitalism. And the only good thing about that, because I'm teaching um, at my college for 25 years, and I also taught in University of San Diego and um, George Mason University, and I can, uh, University of Dallas, and I can attest that the good thing that they prefer socialism is that they don't know what it is. Many of them really don't know what it is, and many of my colleagues also, <clears throat> I would say, or in general in academia, they have kind of a strange thing that communism is bad, communism is bad, socialism is good, socialism is good and communism is bad. However, if you will look into this, you will see that there is no such thing as communism. It was never practiced. Uh, we call communist party communist parties uh, only because it was a goal, it was a goal. Marx himself, when he was asked by Engels when the communists would come, and he said maybe five, six hundred years from now. So we still have 200, 300 years to wait. And uh, so what we had is socialism, no, it's not, 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 not communism. Uh, Marx was saying, well, I'll just maybe show you some pictures. Oops. Yeah, this is Marx. Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so what, what Marx was saying, that communism would be when the state would wither away. We would not need any, any state. We would not need any government. It would be kind of, kind of a libertarian dream. Why we wouldn't need government? Because we would be such wonderful people who will self-govern ourselves without any external governance uh, applied. Uh, but that would become only true uh, when we will create something which is called the new man of tomorrow, new man of tomorrow. And Marx, speaking about communism, he, he, was, uh, he was writing that. In communist society, nobody has one exclusive sphere of activity, but each can become accomplished in any branch he wishes. To hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, herdsman, or critic. So that's the, the, the essence of socialism, uh, of communism, I'm sorry. Essence of socialism is to prepare this wonderful state of affairs. And um, Lenin, his disciple who, who implemented Marxist teaching into real life, uh, he wrote in his State and Revolution, as the first sentence is that we inherited from Tsars very poor human material, uh, meaning people. Um, this material can be mended only by mass shootings and forced labor. And sure enough, they started mass shootings and they could not stop. That the, uh, the human toll of socialism experiment in Russia itself is anywhere from 43 to 61 million people. 61 million is the number of the Solzhenitsyn Foundation and by of the a uh, famous American demographer, uh, Rudy Rammel, Rudolf Rammel from University of Hawaii. He wrote, if, if you're interested in all this, this gruesome story of, of socialist experiment, uh, he wrote a, a great book called Death by Government, in which he is, a, as a demographer, he just 
calculates numbers. He's not saying it was wrong or right or whatever without, it's kind of value-free numbers, numbers. In Soviet Union, I remember when I still was there, they, uh, they, you remember it was the policy of perestroika and the collateral to that was policy of glasnost. Policy of glass was policy of openness, so-called openness. Mr. Gorbachev declared this policy after Chernobyl nuclear power accident. Uh, after this accident, Mr. Gorbachev, he uh, made a point, I remember listening, that he was not told even what happened. Uh, that for five days he didn't know that what, that <coughs> what happened really in, in Chernobyl. And uh, the truth was hidden from him by the, by the local Communist Party authorities. And so that's why we need glasnost, we need transparency in government, we need, it was not, glasnost was not meant to be a freedom of speech, it was just more transparency in government, more transparency in government. Uh, in the summer I was, uh, the summer I was invited to Omaha by, by, the, by the national organization which is called Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. Doctors for Disaster Preparedness would be the, 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 the doctors who, or preparing ourselves uh, for all kinds of disasters. And, uh, and they asked me to be a keynote speaker speaking about Chernobyl. And I looked at the archives right now in the Library of Congress, there's great archives by, of General Dmitry Volkogonov. And in these archives, it turned out that Mr. Gorbachev was not telling us truth, that he knew everything what happened in Chernobyl 10 minutes after it really happened. And they had a secret meeting of Politburo already at 3 a.m. And the Chernobyl catastrophe occurred at 1.24 a.m. So at 3 o'clock, and uh, he made some decisions there, however, for which he probably should not be proud. Uh, because uh, one of the decisions was that we should send, and Minister of Defense at that time, he uh, came up with a number of 700,000 troops, 700,000 troops, young conscripts, were sent to Chernobyl with brand new AK-47, nice new uniforms, and nothing else, and nothing else, with no, with no brooms, with no, with no um, buckets, with no um, shower facilities, with no, so that was, I think, I would say, kind of a crime number one against his own people. And another, another interesting uh, decision was made at the same Politburo member um, meeting that, that we are not, that there is a shortage of, of everything in the Soviet Union, at that time it was, uh, that we cannot afford to throw away uh, radioactive products like meat, dairy products, whatnot, that we need just to, to add them in so-called safe quantities to say clean meat or whatever. So you take meat glowing in the dark, you, you make say ground beef, you make sausages out of that, but, but you add it just only a little bit, less than let's say that, seven, eight percent, less than seven, eight percent, which I think is kind of criminal thing as well, because they were increasing this percentage points, this safe levels three times, three times. But returning back to this policy of glassness, one of the parts of this policy of glassness was that they will put members of his cabinet on national TV and people would call, it will be call-in programs, people would call. And um, one of these people on the, uh, who was put on the spot was Viktor Krychkov, who was the chairman of the KGB at that time. And uh, what was, uh, 
pretty interesting that the whole country was watching this with insatiable interest because before that, before Glasnost, everything you could see on TV was never live TV. It was pre-taped, it was approved, it was whatever. So there's nothing much to watch. And here this, we, we, we had this chairman of KGB and one, one caller, I think that was staged by Mr. Gorbachev himself, one caller called and, and he said, well, I came up with the number of 43 million people murdered by your institution. And Mr. Krichkov, he said, well, I don't know these numbers, but give me a week. He said, give me a week and I will meet you with you here again. And so the next week, the whole country was glued to TV screens to find out how many millions of skeletons you have in your cupboard. And, uh, and uh, uh, Mr. Krichkov, he said, well, comrades, comrades, the number is about right. But it's preposterous to, to insist that all these people were murdered. Most of them died of natural causes. And the moderator, a nice, young, courageous lady, she said, um, she said well, if you don't feed people, they die of natural causes. If you don't clothe them in Siberia, they die of natural causes. Um, but these people, all of this died on your premises. Well, he said, well, people die everywhere. And, um, and that's, so that means that this number, 43 or 61 million maybe, um, I, to tell the truth, I don't care, 43 or 61, because both numbers are way above my comprehension of what evil is. And Stalin himself, he believed in this very well, and he, uh, his famous quip is that death of one is a tragedy, death of a million just statistic. So death of a million is not million tragedies, it's just statistic. And that's what I think many people still do not realize that, um, that why Soviet Union collapsed. Because Soviet Union was, I mean, every, every socialist society does not have any, any um, incentives to do anything. If you, if, because this is a, this is, equality of results. It's not equality of opportunities. It's equality of results. So no matter what you do or don't do, you will be rewarded more or less the same as everybody else, as everybody else. So under that kind of circumstances, people do not have incentives to do anything. And then what you, what you have instead, you need to come up with some incentives. And that incentives would be fear, just raw fear, violence, coercion. And that's why you need mass murder. So from that perspective, I would say that I think that socialism, as it was practiced, was nothing else but public slavery. Public slavery, people were slaves, slaves of the government, owned by the government. And public slavery is much worse even than private slavery. As bad as private slavery is, it doesn't make sense to kill your slaves. You're destroying wealth. Under public slavery, the slaves are not only an asset, but also liability. And that's why under different types of socialism, like national socialism in Germany, for example, they officially were murdering people who were handicapped, people who, who were terminally sick. Um, while under, under Stalin's conditions, um, they also did the same, but they were not advertising it this way. Um, Stalin realized very well that if you give plans, you give them the targets, how many people you should kill in your, in your region, in your oblast. Uh, uh, say, for example, <coughs> Mr. Khrushchev, 
um, who was first secretary of the Communist Party of Ukraine, um, he would be given, say, 15,000 uh, um, people quota that he needs to, to produce 15,000 uh, enemies of the people and kill them. And he would ask for another 17,000, saying that 15,000 is not enough, we, we can kill more. And definitely the local governments would pick up people who are liability rather than, rather than the most active uh, active um, members of labor force of labor force. So that would be mostly sick people, would be people um, disabilities, would be people who are old, um, and that's what the social medicine, social in socialized medicine in the Soviet Union was also like that. That you would not have medical attention after 65. Uh, almost at all, they would feed you with aspirin and things like that, but no serious, uh, no serious um, surgeries or, or things like that. Because you were moving from being an active slave into uh, becoming a social parasite, and and that's uh, uh, and that's the governments were were uh, pretty uh, uh, pretty eager to to discard. Then. Um, what happened with Mr. Gorbachev? Why Soviet Union collapsed? They could they would be happy happily killing more and more people and surviving longer period of time. Look at the murderous Castro brothers in Cuba or Kim family in North Korea. They understand what is happening and that's why they continue killing and continue to apply coercion and violence against their own people. But in the Soviet Union we had Mr. Gorbachev and I remember very well that that uh, that he was saying, for example, that we need to to create socialism with a human face, with a human face. And my immediate boss was uh, Leonid Balkin. I don't know if you heard the name. He was first deputy prime minister of Soviet Union. And I remember he even said, while Gorbachev was still in the room, he said, Yuri, is there a, do you think there is something behind this birthmark? And because he couldn't, um, he couldn't believe what he hears, right? That Mr. Gorbachev looks like he didn't understand why socialism needed need, need mass murder. And, um, and at that time, it was a, it was a, a joke in Moscow that CIA didn't know what this perestroika is all about, and so they sent, uh, they found that James Bond is in retirement, so they hired James Bond and sent him to Moscow. And James is walking from one store to another, goes to a bakery, and in his little notebook he writes there, no, no bread, goes to a butcher shop and writes there, no meat, goes to a shoe store writing, no shoes, and there is a KGB officer looking over his shoulder, and he said, two years ago you would be murdered, you would be killed for doing that. He runs there, no bullets. And that's exactly when people realized there were no bullets, then everybody stopped working. I remember that day even very well uh, that my secretary, Lena, a very nice young lady, and, um, and she was an evening student of Moscow University, and uh, she was picking paper clips into her purse. And I said, Lena, why you are stealing state property in such strange form, paper clips? And uh, she went ballistic at me. She said, Yuri, what else can I take from this F office? Just show me, I'll take that. Nothing, nothing here. And, um, and I was walking back home and thinking that if young and bright ones are going to work only to steal something there, then this society and this economy is doomed. 
And, um, and so I came to this conclusion maybe, what, four years before the CIA learned about demise of Soviet Union from Washington Post. So that's the, the kind of the narrative I would like to, to, um, uh, to make. Today, um, we will talk, I mean, if, if you want to, we can discuss hydrocarbons. Yeah, so they had this, all this, all this uh, uh, terror was uh, implanted into Marxism. Um, that Marx and suppression of Neuranian society, they are writing that we will kill, we will kill. Uh, Marx is writing that, that small nationalities and peoples are destined to perish. There's a great video called Soviet Story made by Edwin Schnorri, very good Latvian producer uh, in Latvia, funded by European Parliament. And um, uh, this is uh, the best video to, to inoculate yourself against the, the bacilla of socialism, or maybe short of going to Cuba. Uh, and I did go to Cuba with my students many times to show them the disaster in the making in Cuba. And um, um, not many people realize, even today, that average wage in Cuba is $9 per month. It's not $15 per hour like in the city of Seattle, but it's $9 per month. You see in Cuba disaster of enormous proportions. And, and um, there's a biggest, I would say, biggest propaganda person in the world, even bigger than me, is uh, Michael Moore. And he made his movie, Sico, yes, praising Cuban medicine. And so I have a good friend in Cuba who is up there in the government, and he asked me never to tell his name, and I would not, but he addresses my, addressed my, my, my classes there. And, um, and, his, um, and, and one young woman who watched this, this Mike Moore's creation, uh, she, um, uh, she said, well, uh, we see it's a disaster around here, but, but how about your medical system? Your healthcare system is the best uh, looks like in the world. How can it be if everything else is in such a disrepair? And, um, and he said, well, um, yeah, it's one of the best in the world. It's not the best even. But as a true socialist, I see room for improvement. Uh, it would be even better if we would have um, medicines, doctors, clinics, hospitals, uh, ambulances, then it would be just perfect. And then we were walking out of the room, and he, in Russian, he said, uh, he said, uh, healthcare, healthcare, swim to Miami, that's my healthcare kind of recipe. And uh, that's, that's exactly, well, they almost arrested me uh, the last time I was there uh, with, uh, I think, somebody I think, who knows, you know Deirdre McCloskey, right? Yeah, I was with Deirdre McCloskey. Deirdre McCloskey can put you in jail with any, in any place. And um, she was asking questions like, how many people do you think Fidel Castro murdered? And, and all this, uh, this, kind of, um, this kind of things. And uh, <clears throat> so I don't go to Cuba anymore. But, but now we're kind of, I would say, um, witnessing, I think, the, the, I wouldn't say the the Cuban assault on the United States, but unfortunately, I think that the ideas which should be discarded, uh, they're still in place. And then I just want to, yes, the, the classes and races too weak to master the new conditions of life must give way. 
Uh, he Marx called um, uh, Basques, he called Scottish Islanders, racial trash, which should be discarded. Slavs, all Slavs, racial trash. Poland, absurd, absurd, absurdity of Poland. Why we should have Poland? That's what, again, that's what Karl Marx. Uh, so that's the, the or anti-Semit he was. Jews of Poland, I, I don't want even to repeat this, but you can, you can just read it on the, on the, on the screen. So that's the, so what if we will go to, yeah, Stalin, yeah, it looks like, it looks like a nice person in 1915, but, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to talk about uh, great Hayek, yes, uh, um, um, uh, great Austrian economist and uh, Nobel laureate, he, uh, Hayek, he is uh, most, I would say, ardent champion of freedom in the 20th century, and he um, he wrote his Road to Serfdom, it's a uh, book which, I would say, changed the world. Uh, in Russia, you could get um, seven years of jail just for having a book, or 12 years for passing it around will be called um, dissemination of anti-Soviet slander. And uh, <clears throat> now I'm giving extra credit for my students to read it. Uh, so that's what he was saying. Yeah, that's, oh, sorry, that's wrong Hayek. This is a true Hayek. And Van uh, <clears throat> Mises was writing about two different per patterns of socialism, because again, many people don't, they think fascism is different from socialism. It's different only that they also put a lot of nationalism into socialist doctrine. However, if you will read Mein Kampf, you would see uh, that, that Hitler, uh, he praised Marxism, um, that they, that uh, Lenin, was the second, according to Goebbels, was the second only to Hitler in his greatness. Yeah. So the German pattern, it's a, it's a type of socialist, socialist economy where the, where the private property is declared. It is declared, but to have private property, to have a deed, to have a, to have a title to property, is the same as to have a title, say, for wetlands in the United States. You cannot do much with that. And um, uh, because it's, um, it's private property, but central planning, and central planning overrules private property. So that was the, 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 the kind of the idea. Then we want to go to, what, to, just almost everything. Oh yeah, this is Cuba. This is store, Cuban store. That's the, um, even in Soviet stores, it will be more. They usually would have lottery tickets as well. But um, uh, I've asked, uh, what is that? That's the only thing that you can buy without, without rationing coupon. And I asked, what is that? They said, that's baking soda. And I, I made a stupid remark. I said that you should, you should put people who are in charge of baking soda in charge of everything. And they almost arrested me right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> So that's, uh, yeah, this is, you can see fixer-uppers everywhere, because since 1959 they didn't, they didn't put any money into maintenance of real estate. And you will see, this is just amazing, I don't know if I have pictures of that, but, oh, this is ambulance, yeah. <laughs> that's what went. Um, and uh, 
they have high rises, for example, 16 floors. And um, since 1959, no maintenance, so indoor plumbing is not working. Uh, elevators do not work. And can you imagine you're living on a 16th floor and you need to go in the middle of the night? Then you, you need to go all the way up and down. And it looks like, according to the smell, that you, you can feel almost everywhere. Some people just um, cut corners in this <laughs> kind of things. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is kind of Cuba. Yeah. So the oh, this is pretty funny. That's that uh, there's a Chinese billionaire. Yeah. He uh, he became very rich, but he was also brainwashed as a young man in, in communism. And and Lenin um, Lenin hated gold as a symbol of capitalism, and he used to say that we will make we will make. Um, um, the toilet commodes out of gold. That's what gold is designed for because it's not, it's, uh, there's no corrosion and whatnot and looks beautiful for, for exactly that. And he built this, uh, this, this uh, toilet as a, just as a conversation kind of topic for his house. But amazingly enough, he built it $7 million. Now the price is about $40 million uh, because the price of gold is just going, going up. <laughs> Uh, sorry, that's uh, so much for everything. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, this, for those who who thinks that that fascism is not is not some kind of like right wing. Yeah, we have my my son. He is 13 years old, and he came uh, he came from school. He think uh, fascists are right wingers. Yeah, right wingers. And um, I said no, they're not right wingers. They are left wingers. And. Um, uh, there's some nice quote from, from Adolf Hitler. I just want to go to, oh yes, to hydrocarbons. Then uh, oil, or we, maybe we can discuss it if you are interested. I don't want to kind of to. That's what I came for. Uh -huh. Oh, okay, very good. Right. Well, Russia was number one in production of crude oil and number one in natural gas until 2013. Then in 2014, another country became number one in natural gas in, 19, in 2015. The same very country became number one in oil. Oh, who knows what country is that? United States, that's right. Yeah, most of my students never heard of that because you cannot read that in the newspaper. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> yes, it's uh, mostly due to what? To horizontal fracking, yeah, to horizontal fracking. Then Bengt Vogt Rasmussen, um, uh, the Secretary General of NATO, uh, he was speaking recently in Chatham House uh, in, in London, and he made the point that he got a lot of NATO intelligence that that Mr. Putin is funding anti-fracking groups in the United States and in, in European Union, um, in European Union, uh, because um, they really feel they really feel uh, insecure, extremely insecure, because of because of um, um, prices for oil and gas are going down, and some Russian economists didn't calculate that. 
that prices below $30, they would create uh, a bankruptcy of, of government because the Russian government is dependent, 65% of all revenue is coming from natural resources. It's something which is called in economics curse of natural resources. What is curse of natural resources is that if you will look at the economic history of the world, you would see that countries well endowed in natural resources are doing on average much worse than countries which do not have any natural resources. Um, if you look at countries like Venezuela or Nigeria or Angola or countries of Middle East or Russia itself, you would see that these are kind of, paraphrasing Mr. Putin, these are very poor people living in very rich countries. Uh, so that's the, some of these countries are run by kleptocrats. Uh, my favorite is um, as, um, Sanya Abacha, he was the president of Nigeria, has stolen eight billion eight billion dollars from his own from his own people. Um, but he, with capital H, punished him in the most atrocious way. Uh, he went to see his friends, who happened to be Indian prostitutes, and to to kind of beef up his self confidence, he swallowed two jars of Viagra pills, and that's the only well documented case of Viagra poisoning. <laughs> And, um, and so you have people like that uh, all over. Uh, some of you can say, well, look at the United States or Canada or Australia, also a lot of natural resources, but no curse. Well, no curse only for one reason, that our natural resources are uh, owned privately, privately. If you have a government owning natural resources, then you don't, you're not concerned about chicken laying golden eggs, because you can kill a chicken and an egg and whatever else, because your, your, your funding is coming from, not from taxes. I mean, you probably notice that I don't like taxes, but from another hand, taxes is a very powerful feedback between the governed and the government. So that's, that means that, that say, in a, in, in, in a full-blown democracy or a, a more or less market economy, um, it does make sense, it does make sense to destroy the basis. But if, you, if the basis is somewhere else, if, the, if, it's, if it's natural resources, then Lenin wrote, in, according to this Volkogonov archives, Volkogonov archives in the Library of Congress, that uh, Lenin wrote to Trotsky in 1919, he's saying that, Dear Leo, if our revolution would win in Belgium, we would be done away in a week, in a week. Here we have 11 time zones. Well, he didn't add to loot, but that was, I think, meant. And so that's why they survived for so long. That's the, the curse of natural resources, a real curse for many countries where the regimes would definitely would go if they would not have these resources to, to keep them up. So this um, energy consumption in Russia is uh, then um, you can see that a lot of the consumption is, is much lower than, than the overall production. So available export is, uh, is uh, um, 7.3 billion, billion barrels per day. Then then whom do they sell it? Then you can see that they are selling the natural resources too. Those of you who are interested in these statistics, it's most of it's taken from from the CIA data, and which is uh, which is actually public. It's called environmental and 
and um, hydrocarbons of environmental issues and hydrocarbons uh, in in Russia. And if if you are interested, then you can email me. I will send you I will send you the whole the whole report whole report with all this with all these things or or this presentation whatever you like. Yeah. So they have, however, quite a lot of quite a lot of um, gas reserves, gas reserves. So in the future, uh, however, gas reserves say in the United States and Canada, we have so much of gas reserves which were not which were not discovered. For example, you cannot do any geological work in the whole Midwest. It's just uh, just prohibited. Yeah, you cannot cannot do that. Say in Wisconsin. Then uh, coal reserves, that's not many people know about that, that Russia is also a huge exporter of coal, huge exporter of coal, so that's the, um, however, in, in uh, European Union and the United States, coal, we kind of, it's a villain, and we're trying to get rid of coal, and, uh, and definitely, uh, even to the point that that you remember maybe Newcastle, yeah, you don't bring coal to Newcastle, yes, the, the saying is. And in Newcastle, they have this, uh, this a lot of uh, um, electric power station, which right now do not use coal from Newcastle, which sits on coal, but they bring the, the, uh, the wood chips from Canada uh, to, because they kind of, the government is torn apart. From one hand, they cannot fire all this, all these people who are union members uh, producing electricity. From another hand, coal is pretty bad, and so they bring the they bring the, the wood chips from Canada, and so then and then the cost of electricity increased 160 percent, 160 percent. So um, on this cheerful note, I would be happy to maybe take questions. What you are interested in discussing? <laughs> Yeah. First of all, I, I like to make a little comment. Uh, I met Gorbachev about ten years ago mm -hmm. at the Miami College in Miami, Florida, because it's Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, and to my surprise, he actually felt like the collapse of the Soviet Union it was true that it was necessary. Mm -hmm. So I, I was very much surprised that he would occur with that. At the same time, I like. Castro and Che Guevara, mm -hmm. making many people in Europe and in the, in the also in the Americas sympathize with the idea of communists or reach into socialists. Mm -hmm. And after that, being already emerged into the Americas, particularly when in the Central American area they were very complex to uh, the contrast to fight back, you allow to establish satellite countries in the Americas too close to the United States to become socialistic or communist or a satellite country of the Soviet Union then. Do you felt that the, the misconception, the erroneous lie about that socialism, socialists would resolve issues of our country economically? 
Well, I mean, I, I understand why Mr. Gorbachev saying that Soviet Union demise the Soviet Union is good because he presided over it. So his, uh, that's kind of his making, yeah, <laughs> of his making, definitely. And uh, he should be credited by that. But he came up to this realization a bit late. After all, he already covered with blood and minced meat. And that happened in Lithuania when 26 people were moved by Soviet tanks. And then in Georgia and Tbilisi, Remember that a lot of people were killed with, uh, with shovels. They gave shovels only to soldiers. Uh, so these are the kind of uh, the, uh, he was he was all time saying that he's reformed communist reform, which for me sounds like reformed Nazi or whatever. <laughs> the same the same thing. In the beginning, he was just really pretty sad was to hear from him. He would say, Stalin made some mistakes. So they wiped out 40 million people. That's he's made by some mistakes. It's, uh, it's kind of like Hitler would say, oops, we did something wrong in Auschwitz. Uh, so that's the, the, then what the socialism, socialism is attractive because especially if you, you, be, you, you, you teach it, yes. If you teach people who then if uh, the lie, which is repeated many times, would become kind of, looks, sounds truthful, sounds truthful. Mr. Gorbachev, however, he was, um, he was not, um, he was socialist, and he is still socialist in his thinking. He is uh, not, not like Mr. Yeltsin. Mr. Len Yeltsin, he, I had a dubious pleasure of working with him for, for half a year. And um, yeah, he was kind of like Pat Buchanan, I would say. Um, he was nationalist, and, and I would say more, more on a capitalist side. Mr. Gorbachev, uh, the only kind of funny thing I heard of him that that Abel Agan began, he was his best friend, and, um, and uh, they called him father of perestroika. And Abel is, uh, we called him biggest economist in the world. He was even bigger than, than Mike Moore or myself. And, and uh, he, Abel once, he said, what I think we need to do is to, to build a Swedish model of socialism. And Gorbachev immediately quipped back, he said, Abel, where you would get all the Swedes? And that's and that's exactly because because uh, the Sweden is uh, from point of view of economics they don't have many incentives to work but they do maybe that's a Lutheran inertia or something. Then um, with uh, with uh, with Cuba yeah why they socialist because they apply violence because if you are not socialist then you are either out if you kind of if you are lucky enough then you end up in Miami if not then you end up in. in uh, um, couple of feet below the ground. And the, in Cuba today, if you will look, the population of Cuba is 9 million people, 9 to 10 million people. And uh, there are 6 million Cubans living outside of Cuba. There's the biggest diaspora. Yeah. Not only in the United States, we have a lot of Cubans. You go to Miami, whatever. But if you go to places like Madrid, yeah, there's, go to Spain, you go to Mexico, you go to Argentina. There's a huge um, Cuban diaspora there as well. Uh, then, um, uh, it's, uh, in Cuba, it's, it's, it's really a regime of the, of the kind of, it, they don't even hide it that it's slavery. They, you cannot quit your job. If, you, if they want you to work here, then you, you, you cannot change your, your, your work. Um, peasants, they live in collective farms, and collective farms, uh, they have everything free. And, uh, and I remember I had a, we had a meeting, and, uh, and the brainwasher disguised as a chairwoman of collective farm, 
he spoke like a BBC announcer, and um, I mean, with a, with this excellent, excellent standard British, and uh, she was telling us what a paradise it is, and that we, that we have free healthcare, we have free education, free, free this, free that, whatever. And the only thing I asked her, I said, well, how can you move out of here? And she said, well, well this is paradise. Why, why do you need to move? I mean, where, where else? No, we need you here. Yeah. So I asked immediately my students, I mean, well, well, everything is free, free healthcare, free, free, free food, free everything, but you cannot move. How do you call this? And one young woman, she just yelled slavery, and slavery it is. Uh, so why do they, why people like it? I think that some people just, uh, like that, the, I mean, the, the, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence for them. Uh, then we don't hear about atrocities. We don't hear much about about disaster of of that uh, that that socialism. Socialist practice in 33 countries. In all 33 countries, it led to complete, I would say, uh, decline and and uh, mass murder and and destruction. Mr. Yeltsin, I remember, he called. Soviet Union, environmental Auschwitz, because, because you know that environmental issues, they would arise mostly because of the absence of property rights. For example, why we have environmental pro problems? Because you cannot, you cannot privatize air, for example, or you cannot privatize uh, Atlantic Ocean or even Chesapeake Bay. So, um, so that's why they don't have a shepherd. They don't have a shepherd, so. Mm -hmm. um. How important, very important, definitely. Yes, the southern, the, the, the southern pipeline uh, going through Turkey is very important because they can bypass Ukraine. Uh, Putin is also a con control freak, and he, uh, he just, I, I think he's, he's just losing his sleep, thinking that that some Ukrainians can just turn the faucet, and and that and that would be the end of his uh, of his supplies to to Western Europe. Uh, so that's. Definitely, because I think that Ukraine would be would be uh, would be a problem for quite a long time, for quite a long time. The Ukraine, if you again the Soviet story video, it's it's a it's also interesting interesting documentary made by by Ukraine by University of Kiev about Holodomor. Uh, um, it's all ticking bombs are, are blowing up right now, because if you remember the dreadful winter of 1932-1933. When, when the Red Army confiscated all food in Ukraine, all food, especially in eastern Ukraine, eastern and southern Ukraine was slated because the farmers, they objected to collectivization, objected to be enslaved on their own land. And, and so the all food was withdrawn, and seven million people were starved to death. And then another six million who, who didn't want to starve to death, whatever, they were sent to Siberia and were put to death right there. So it's uh, 13, 15 million people uh, in Ukraine in that area. And then the whole idea of Stalin, Lenin, Khrushchev was to create some kind of homogeneous blob. Soviet people, Soviet people. So you're not a Kazakh, you're not Russian, you're not Lithuanian, you are a Soviet, Soviet person. Completely rootless and whatnot. And so then, 
And then uh, they repopulated, repopulated these areas with these Russian speakers. Russian, I don't blame that people because they're also pawns. They, they were moved there, many of them against their own will. Now this ticking bomb is, look, another ticking bomb Stalin planted with uh, Nagorny Karabakh and, and Azerbaijan, uh, which is Armenian, 100% uh, Armenian, uh, Armenian territory, which was given to Azerbaijan, uh, just for the reason to have this, this, uh, these problems that you can only solve, presumably from Moscow. Uh, so that's the the Ukraine would would I think be burning there, and I would I would think that even that the, what Putin is right now doing in Syria, is that's mostly he's doing that for the sake of Ukraine, for the sake of his policies in Ukraine, because this creates a wonderful smokescreen for for his. Um, and then if you will look what we are doing in response, nothing, nothing. Congress six times passed resolutions that we need to provide Ukraine with, um, uh, with real weapons. Instead of that, we are providing them with only blankets, right, and, and, and goggles, or night vision goggles. That's what our assistance to, to Ukraine is. I would I would think it is not because I my my wife is Lithuanian. And so we travel almost every year. We, we spend time in Latvia, in Estonia, in, in Lithuania. And I think most Russians there uh, are not very much pro Putin. That's the. Well, May I say that's right, yeah, but that would be Russian citizens living in Latvia. While Russian Latvians, I think many of them, they don't want to move. They don't want to move, but with Russian non-citizens, so-called 300,000, uh, which uh, they are definitely not pro-Latvia and not pro-Putin. Well, that's, that's another ticking bomb, definitely, but we have... Um, Latvia being a member of NATO, yeah, we have a Latvian army is the biggest Russian army in NATO, if you will find out, because uh, Russians being a minority, usually minorities everywhere, they go disproportionately big numbers to, to the military. And, and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, impossible defense of uh, Mr. Gorbachev, uh, possible defense. I wonder uh, what you would say about uh, the question uh, when the time came uh, in 
<laughs> yes, I I, uh, I agree absolutely. Right, right. No, with uh, with Mr. Gorbachev, uh, he should be credited. Yeah, he uh, he. Um, uh, if you will look not about intentions, his intentions were to to reform socialism. Uh, the consequences were complete destruction of Soviet Union. So so he definitely should be credited for that. Whether he did it uh, inadvertently or whether he it was a plan. But um, but that's what he did. But sometimes he would, when when you work with him, he sounds sometimes. I hate to say that, it's just like a like an idiot. He would say, for example, the problem with the planned economy is that we never had a good plan. Can you imagine that that we never had? A, we must make a good plan, and then and then everything would be would be tip top. Then uh, also with Mr. Gorbachev, definitely that he was a catalyst of change, and uh, and uh, uh, he uh, he just uh, that's why he's accused right now. They're planning to put him on trial before he died. Before he dies, he right now is very frail, and so they they're, they're planning to put him on on trial as a as a CIA agent, yeah. and that's. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, yes. In the West, geologists are taught that oil is a fossil fuel and it can only be found drilling through uh, sedimentary rock where <laughs> sediment is overlaid by you know, biomass and it's been smushed into oil. That, now, Russian and Ukrainian scientists, maybe 50 or 60 years ago, I understand, they theorized oil is abiotic, it's generated by chemical processes in the mantle of the earth. And it seems that well proven it because I guess Russia produces most of its oil by drilling through granite. Mm -hmm. Can you comment on the implications of that? It and so many specialists in Russia, they think that they reached the end of trapezoid. Then they have a lot of discovered deposits of oil. However, with a break-even price of $30 per barrel, uh, it would not be economically feasible to, to drill because Russia is, Russian uh, um, um, oil is going north, more to the north and more to the, to the, to the east. And um, with a very high, for example, in Saudi Arabia, with, um, with the cost of extraction of, say, of barrel of oil is uh, about $4, $4. In Russia, it's close to $30 because you need to bring, they just had what, yesterday, this awful catastrophe when the, when the helicopter with um, uh, the people who, uh, who produce oil there? They don't live there because it's unlivable place. So they, they would, um, they would have shuttles bringing them for two weeks and then returning them back. And um, because the, the climate there is so bad that it's, uh, it's in the Arctic Circle that that um, a lot of a lot of uh, it's very very costly, very costly, especially when they. We did not cooperate anymore with our oil companies because our oil companies were providing them with the, with um, uh, with the know-how and equipment. I came myself from um, I was born in Republic of Tatarstan. Tatarstan is 
as a, a, a capital Kazan. It's not in the south, it's in the middle of Russia. That's where the Tatars uh, were ruling Russia, Genghis Khan, uh, the Golden Lords Empire. And Tatarstan is all sitting on oil. It was sitting on oil. And then what they did, they were drilling the, the to extract oil from there, they would um, put a lot of water in, yes, because oil is lighter than water, it comes comes out. So now, by doing that, they they destroyed a lot of deposits. There's still, there's still millions of tons of oil, but it's very difficult and not impossible to extract, unless they will use the horizontal drilling, which we call fracking. So that's the... the um, drilling through granite, yes, yes, it's not only granite, it's a lot of other uh, minerals there as well. I'm curious, I'm not Dr. Kerr's, uh, but my name is Dr. Wall now. That's what we're going to be So, with this current, you know, low oil price, however, it's arranged, how are they making any money? I mean, it should be going broke. Well, one thing that they need some oil for themselves, and they use that no matter what the price is. Then, besides that, Russia is uh, the the currency, the ruble, is not a real card currency in the sense that that they do print as many as they wish. And that's why they will be paying. They have ruble expenses, not not dollar expenses, and so they are getting dollars. And uh, with them, even with the exchange rate as unfavorable to them as it is today, um, it's what seventy rubles per uh, per, per one dollar. Uh, so even with that, they they can buy whatever they need to do, even if they're making losses in rubles. So they are losing money. Yes. Uh -huh. In many cases, okay. right? Because uh -huh. it's a huge bureaucracy as well. It's a lot of other. So how long can they keep doing this? I mean, I mean Sorry? there's forces that want that oil won't for the hours it seems like. How long can they propagate this bubble without another crash? Uh, that would depend if they would, um, if they would, I would say, um, um, return back to to violence. Then they can survive forever, yeah, forever. But. If not, then then I don't know how long it will take. What will be the dynamics of oil prices? The, uh, people predict that Venezuela will go broke in a, in, a, in a year. Some people think it's already broke. So it's um, it's difficult to to assess. Yeah, I think Churchill was pretty good on assessing Russia. He used to say that Russia is the only country in the world with unpredictable past. So it's very difficult. To predict future for them. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> uh, two questions. One is I've heard, I believe, that there are are major um, energy infrastructure, energy extraction infrastructure problems in in you know Gaspros, etc. That that there has been no reinvestment into modernizing, and that. <laughs> They're approaching a point where the whole thing could just sort of, out of agedness and lack of repair, fall apart badly. Mm -hmm. uh, and my second question is, if you can envision a post-Putin world, a post-Putin Russia. 
All right, what if I'll begin with the second one, because that's, um, that's kind of uh, really difficult to envision, because Mr. Putin is, what, well, this month he is only 64, and he looks pretty good. He is not, uh, unlike Mr. Yeltsin, he, he, he is not so much into these beverages. And Mr. Yeltsin, Mr. Yeltsin was kind of all the time uh, ruling under influence. And, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of bad news. Um, the other bad news is that he would never quit. I mean, people like him or like, like Castro brothers or like Mugabe in Zimbabwe or, or, or Kims in Korea would never quit because they are already hostages to the high crimes and misdemeanors. So he, he, if he values his own life, he should stay there with the presidential detail around him. So I don't know what will happen. If not, if for some reason something would happen and, and, and um, he with capital H will get rid of him, then, then I think it will be the same. It will be the same. And Mr. Putin, he is, um, he is kind of like attacking others, others and whatnot, but he has his surrounding. It's all, it's even Tsar's practice that since, since Ivan the Terrible. Uh, he surrounded himself with a, um, with a pretty dangerous people. So, so most Russians, as well as, as, as people in our Department of State, they think that Putin is the best bet of what else is there. Because if you will look at the leader of opposition, Mr. Zhirinovsky, Zhirinovsky, he is demanding return of Russia to the borders of 1850. 1850, that means give us back Finland, Poland, Alaska, it's all, yeah, so all of this. Uh, so why Mr. Putin would surround himself, and definitely Mr. Zhirinovsky would never say that if it would not be approved by Mr. Putin. Because when Mr. Putin is nice to say, well, look what kind of background I have. If you want that, then get rid of me. And um, uh, that was all the same thing in, in Gorbachev's administration. He appointed nobody as the ministers, and then they had this coup d'etat, these people uh, got rid of him, and uh, so these are the, 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 the uh, kind of the best illustration, I think, in, of the Hayek's, uh, Hayek's essay, why only the worst are coming to the top. It's called adverse selection in government. Yeah. Like you. <laughs> I, I, yes, of course. Uh, that's right. uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, yes, please. I know, I'm from Wisconsin. Yeah. My take on Mr. Putin, I kind of, I'm not, I'm not in the pro-Putin party, definitely. You can look what I published. And um, yeah, my last article published in Russia, in Russian, when was he was elected on relatively free elections in March of 2000, uh, was the, when he got, he was already acting president, appointed by Yeltsin at the last 
last five minutes of, of the last century. And, um, and he got 70% of the popular vote, yes. And my article was was self-descriptive title, Meat Voted for a Meat Grinder. So then, uh, and then, <laughs> it's not a very cheerful title, but but then if, if a meat voted for a meat grinder, then uh, Russia is, uh, I mentioned, it's one-sixth of the world of the world uh, surface, the size of Russia. It's uh, still the biggest thing in the world, one-sixth of the world surface. But I, in my travels, I travel quite a lot. I'm traveling in another five-sixths. Uh, the other five-sixths are kind of safer for me because life expectancy of people who don't like Mr. Putin drops like a rock. And so no matter whether you're in Lithuania or, or London or or, uh, or or Wisconsin, uh, I was invited, just invited to, today, but I didn't have time, but to the Voice of America uh, to, to do an interview on economics. And, uh, and the lady said, then, who, whom I know very well, she said, Yuri, would you like to solicit some polonium from Mr. Putin? And I said, well, this is a bad joke. I said, not funny at all. And she said, uh, I said, if I'm on his hit list, I'm on the last page. And she said, you know how Russia is a confused place. Yeah, they can reshuffle the paper, it will be on the top. And uh, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm afraid for my, my safety, but what I'm saying is that Mr. Putin definitely is autocrat. He is, a, he is an autocrat. He is, a, he, represent, he is a proud representative of the institution which murdered millions of people. Uh, he was interviewed with saying, like, you're an ex-KGB officer. He said, there's no such thing, ex-KGB officer. Alive or dead, that's the only difference. Yeah. And uh, so that was for me as a, as a Russian, ethnic Russian, was pretty sad to see that 70% of people, yeah, can you imagine if, if, if in Germany, uh, ex-Gestapo officer would be, would be elected even a dog ca catcher in, in a remote village, that would be a national tragedy. It would be soul searching, it would be everything. Now we have, so I'm not kind of very fond of Mr. Putin. From another hand, we really don't, have much of what we can do about him. That's the that's the major the major issue because Mr. Putin, like like uh, every occupant on, of Kremlin, he uh, he knows that we are kind of soft. We we have the the soft underbelly, and and now he is trying to to be as active as possible while the the, the sitting duck we have and in Washington DC and um, we have both, both the President and Congress which cannot do anything with him, with his 2800 uh, nuclear warheads. And, uh, however, to put it in perspective, Russian economy is 118th of the US economy, 118th. So it's not, it's not like real danger from that point of view, but from point of view for his neighbors, it's definitely for Ukrainians, for for Baltic states, I think that still the, the the NATO is still still working. So that's that that uh, Putin intervened in Georgia and Ukraine just before this countries this countries explicitly applied to NATO. I think it was the Bucharest summit when George W. Bush wanted to Georgia to be admitted, but Georgia was banned by vetoed by by. At that time, Sarkozy and thing and Merkel, and um, and so he 
Here, I have a, my sleeper cell in Moscow, and um, and a friend of mine whom I would talk to, he, I mean, he, he was an ex-general in the Russian army and Soviet army before, uh, um, um, a medical officer. Um, and his, his point was that he, he thinks and he heard that after the veto of Georgian entry into NATO, then uh, Putin immediately left the room. He was, he was in Bucharest summit of NATO as a guest. He immediately left the, the room and he, and he believes that my friend in Moscow believed that he immediately ordered to prepare. Yeah, he couldn't even wait until they would all shut up. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I was visited Moscow a couple times in summer '96, mm -hmm. and one of the things I seem to remember hearing about was the economy even then, and 20 years ago now, mm -hmm. and they were having, and how were they going to pay their pensioners and keep the population satisfied? How, how is that gone? How is that, how, oh, that's pretty. That yeah, it's just print, print money as much as you need. That's what we are doing as well. I was there. I couldn't believe it. I thought the guy made a mistake. I changed fifty dollars and got um, thousands and thousands of movies out of their four pack. And it was six thousand one in the summer of '96. Yeah, but then they then they cut the one zero. Yes, I was um, here. I was. Uh, um, at the Federal Reserve Seminar, Mr. Bernanke was at that time chairman. And one lady, she was so upset and so angry, she, she stood up and she said, you'll run out of paper printing money. <laughs> and he said, come on, you just press zero. That's all digital. <laughs> That's right. It's all digital. You'll never run out of money. I don't know, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, if NATO were to succeed to have Ukraine become an independent country and be part of NATO, that NATO nation is actually pushing Russia to isolate Russia and limit the access to the Baltic Sea. Therefore, Putin would have to react because actually the Crimea was historically developed in Russia. So the, uh, the, the movement of Russia to take over Ukraine was actually triggered by the NATO nations. Well, I would think that that Mr. Putin doesn't want to take over Ukraine because because most Ukrainians hate uh, him, and unfortunately, this hatred is also kind of is embraced on Russians in general right now. Um, well, not everybody. I mean, definitely many Ukrainian intellectuals or whatnot, they would not like the same thing in, in, in Baltic states, uh, that, uh, that they wouldn't hate all Russians. But from another hand, he, I don't think he would be willing to have these disgruntled citizens again. So what he is, I think, looking, he's looking at the same scenario to put this so-called buffer states, the, the phony kind of puppet states like Abkhazia, um, uh, or like Southern Ossetia, uh, to have the Donetsk and uh, Donbass uh, uh, republics uh, nearby, and to, to kind of then you can play whatever you like to play. And then definitely he wants to prevent NATO from, why he wants to prevent NATO from being, being a border country with, with Russia? I think that he doesn't, he's not afraid of NATO or whatever, but he just needs this, this kind of murky waters. Uh, 
because there is absolutely no justification for him to be president if there is no mobilization psychology, so-called. If, because Russia, again, today, if you will read the newspapers, that's my kind of occupational hazard. I'm watching their TV and reading their newspapers, and most newspapers are saying that Russia is surrounded by, by enemies. So everybody is an enemy of Russia, and only because of Mr. Putin. And so then pensioners and whoever else, they will be told that, well, you cannot get much because of American imperialists uh, trying to uh, trying to strangle Mother Russia or whatnot. So that's the the uh, kind of I, I would think. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. In terms of the Ukraine, or I should say Ukraine, uh, mm -hmm. my understanding is that Putin and his uh, uh, fellow travelers say that um, when the when his favorite uh, government, the regime, and uh, he departed suddenly after the, the revolutionary forces against him, and all of that goes for all of the opposition in Ukraine, and much of the opposition in Ukraine was made up of right-wingers or even fascists in league with the CIA. That seems to be the Putin explanation for uh, how Ukraine switched over uh, government. Do you think there's any truth to that whatsoever? Uh, it's, uh, it's not kind of, um, it's not only Putin's. I mean, if you will read, uh, I mean, Ron Paul Institute, for example, Ron Paul, uh, he is on the side exactly. He's saying that that's what happened. But no, I don't think that we are active anywhere in this in this in this field. Uh, we were supplying Ukraine with what with um, the overall assistance to Ukraine was six billion dollars for the last 25 years and um, and it also and most of it went into something called democracy building this uh, so it, it was just wasted in other words uh, then um, then about right-wingers I mean right-wingers that's that he's right-winger I think as well I mean that, that mostly but you cannot uh, it's like, I don't know, it's like what Trump campaign. That Mr. Putin can say anything, yeah, he can say anything, whatever you, you, you say. Uh, whether we should believe him or not, I don't think we can, because, uh, because who are these right-wingers? Definitely there are some right-wingers in Ukraine, like everywhere else, and maybe some of them are, are ultra-nationalists as, as well, but are they running the government? Definitely not. Uh, right now there is uh, this... Uh, uh, battalion Tornado, maybe you heard of it. Tornado Battalion so kind of was elite, uh, elite special forces of Ukrainian army. Now I think 16 officers of that battalion are on trial in Kiev for for uh, presumed misconduct, uh, military misconduct, uh, dealing with um, with this secessionist in Eastern Ukraine. So Ukrainian government is definitely, it's nothing to, to, to have, it's, it's not right-wing, it's uh, Mr. Poroshenko is a social democrat. Then, um, uh, then I know, uh, I wrote a book what, a couple of years ago, published a book on Tea Party, Tea Party Explained, together with, um, together with Roman Skaskiv, his name was, he's a, a writer from Iowa, from this Iowa art, art, uh, writer circle. He is of Ukrainian extraction. He is born in North Carolina. He is as American as most of you. And he, um, but he went, he got the kind of the call of DNA and uh, moved to Ukraine. And now he is, uh, uh, 
he is a talking head, an old Ukrainian, whatever. And that was his major kind of calling is that to just to tell people that that Ukraine is a, is a victim. It's not a, uh, it's not that that they that some Ukrainian fascists they evicted Mr. Yanukovych. Mr. Yanukovych, uh, not many people know about that. That Mr. Yanukovych spent about eight years in Soviet prisons. Uh, that he was a felon. He was a he was a rapist. He was a, uh, he, um, uh, armed robbery. His last conviction was, and there are some some at least uh, people in Ukraine who strongly believed, who looked it looks like into archives that Mr. Yanukovych became kind of a stooge, a, a secret informant for the KGB while being in jail. And so, if this is true, then definitely. Uh, there is was plenty of kind of uh, blackmail opportunities towards Mr. Mr. Yanukovych, and who would have this opportunity would be an occupant of Kremlin, Mr. Putin. He would have that, and uh, sure enough, uh, sure enough, Mr. Yanukovych at first agreed upon upon this association with the European Union, if you remember the trade association with the European Union, and then he changed his mind almost overnight. That was the Vilnius meeting of the European Union with him. And, um, and so they withdrew, and that all started Maidan, all started everything else. And Mr. Yanukovych, he, um, uh, he deserted to, to Russia, where he lives right now. In, in, and, um, uh, and there is no legitimate, I mean, if, you, if the president of the country is living this way, I mean, he's, he's just escaped.